gloomy, mostly Euclidean confines of Castle Gormagon, upon the lofty wind-blasted heights of the Plateau of Lang, I am Confucius the Ecumenical Volgi, and this is Radio Gormagon. All right, welcome to Radio Gormagons. I'm Gort. Joined with me today is Dr. J in the Mandarin and a special guest, Father Josh. Hello. Um, welcome, Father Josh. Thanks for joining us. Today's episode is going to center around Catholicism uh, in general, and we have a number of questions from some of the other Gor- Gormagons. Maybe we'll do a little free talk first and then jump into some of the other things. So Mandarin or Dr. J, do you want to lead off anything? Sure. Um, welcome, Father Josh. This, I'm, jo- I'm Dr. J. I guess uh, we were learning about vocations in Sunday school today. I was teaching about vocations to my students, which are fifth graders. My son's in my class. And I guess, tell us your vocation story to start. How did you find the calling to be a priest? Thanks. Oh, that's, that's great. I hope that you told them that the best vocation is to be a priest. You know, and the rest are just kind of mediocre. <laughs> I'm hoping that's where you started. But for myself, uh, I was pretty typical. You know, my parents are still together. I was an altar boy. And actually, uh, I was forced to be an altar boy because I kept falling asleep at mass. And my mom was not very happy. So she's like, surely he won't fall asleep if he's up in front of, you know, a thousand people. And surely she was wrong. So that was pretty funny. I fell asleep at mass a bunch of times. But eventually I, I uh, woke up and, and really liked it and really liked being there with the priest and helping out at mass and this sort of thing. And sort of went away from my faith, even though I was going every Sunday. And then had a big conversion experience in high school and said, all right, all right, God, if I'm going to do this Catholicism thing, I'll try out the priesthood thing. And went to college and joined a discernment group and then took a year off to do some missionary work and then uh, went on to seminary. Uh, so I was had a little up and down and that sort of thing, but God was consistently calling me even if I wasn't consistently listening. And then when I went to seminary, it was pretty clear cut, you know, a couple little ups and downs and that sort of thing, but God was consistently calling me in. And so I just stuck around with him and I said, hey, I'm pretty dumb and I'm pretty thick headed. So you got to beat it into me if you want me to leave seminary, because it seems like that, that's where you want me. And so I just kept going with him and, uh, and stuck it out. That's a great story. Did you, um, do you have a lot of brothers and sisters? Because um, one of the things that I was talking to some of the students about was that the idea that, you know, the priesthood, there, not as many people are hearing call to vocation because the parents' reaction, you know, my parents' generation, when people had seven or eight kids, oh my gosh, my one son wants to be a priest. That is amazing. That is awesome. I am so proud. But then if you have two children, nowadays, I think there are parents that are more shocked. Um, we see a lot of that here in Nashville with the Dominicans. So the Dominican sisterhood is very, it's the only growing order in the country with regard to um, nuns. You know, it's one of those things where some of the uh, parents were like, well, I don't know how I'd feel if my daughter was, would go into the sisterhood. It's a different kind of reaction. So how were your parents? uh, How did they take it? They took it very well. Uh, I don't have a lot of siblings, and I know that a lot of guys in seminary had a lot of backlash, a surprising amount of backlash from their families. Even like you said, even when the families are very faithful people, it was like all of a sudden their son is being called to the priesthood. They're just like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I'm happy to pray for other people's sons to become priests, other people's daughters to become sisters, but not my son or my precious baby daughter. Uh, and it's it's ridiculous. I mean, like, 
to the point of discouraging going to seminary because they didn't want their their son to grow up and be a priest, not give him grandkids or some stupid reason like that. You know, grandkids are amazing from what you know grandparents say, but you know to basically you know go against your Catholic faith, it's ridiculous. But no, my parents were very accepting, which was wonderful. And they'd always you know encouraged me the vocation, but they didn't push me. You know, some people thought, you know, oh, they must be pushing them to the, no, they just encouraged and prayed for me and that sort of thing. A little bit like St. Monica and St. Augustine, pray for them, encourage them, that sort of thing, but not shoving one direction or the other. And by the way, I have to have uh, a little Donald Trump moment and say, wrong uh, about uh, the only growing women's religious order. I think there are a couple actually here in the U.S. There's one that sort of split off from the National Dominicans up in Ann Arbor. They're doing well for vocations. And there are a couple others around the U.S. that are doing pretty well with women's religious, and they're getting some vocations. But obviously, the National Dominicans are the most, uh, uh, they're, they're doing the best at everything. And they're a wonderful group. I, I love them. They're, they're great. I've known uh, a couple of them. Yeah, one of my colleagues from medical school is uh, their physician. Because they want to be self-sufficient, she went to, year, went to med school a year behind me. And uh, when I was doing my cardiology fellowship and she was doing her residency, we got a phone call from the ER uh, where they, they asked us to, uh, they had a patient with chest pain that they really didn't think was a heart attack, but they wanted cardiology to come down and bless the patient so they could go home. <laughs> and she was the resident on our service. So we, uh, we sent sister, sister down to, uh, and she's, she told her, the attending, I'm here to bless the patient. I got in a little bit of trouble with the head of the ER. <laughs> That's pretty great. Yeah, I've, I've, gotten, you know, and, and helped out at hospitals and things, but uh, I don't remember ever sending the religious sister to bless anybody. That sounds pretty entertaining. Yeah, but she was the resident too, so. Nice. That, that's even, that makes it way better. Yeah. I remember hearing stories about old religious orders and uh, they'd have a bunch of guys in formation and they would just kind of make one the barber. Like, all right, Jim, you know, we decided we need a barber in the house. You're it. You're going to start cutting hair. It's like, Okay. Uh, you know, I, I bet a lot of people turned out looking pretty funky after that. But, you know, I think it's a better idea to send them off to school to become a doctor. That, that, that sounds much better. So I, I have a quick question. So, I, you know, I think we just you talk about vocations and people going to the seminary and some of that backlash. You know, I, when I was when I went to high school, I actually went to a Chicago seminary here in, in oh, Chicago, obviously, that the archdiocese closed down about me five or six years after I had graduated, not because of lack of attendance, but the fact that out of, you know, a class of 400 graduates, you'd get me three or four to actually go on to the, you know, college seminary portion of it. And then from that, you know, maybe one or two going on to the actual seminary itself. Yeah, it's pretty you know, they, they, And they've closed those down. So, I mean, but at least there was a, a way to funnel into the system. What's available now that you see most people going into being brought into the whole idea of the priesthood or the sisterhood? What are those feeders into that seminary system? That's an excellent question. Uh, and I don't know if the lifers is what they used to call them. I don't know if that works too, you know, as well nowadays, you know, to have the all male school and go forward and, you know, and then like you said, there'd be a couple in the class to try to get into the seminary. And, and those numbers are very typical from college seminary to major seminary. They'd like right now for the religious schools, for the Catholic schools to funnel a few vocations. <laughs> Unfortunately, a lot of the Catholic schools are awful just horrible high schools. And then uh, some of the elementary middle schools are, are also not that great. So not very many are actually interested in becoming priests and sisters. And that it doesn't help with the sisters when you can basically do everything that these religious sisters can do and be married and have a family. 
So why would a woman give up her life to kind of join a community and basically be a social worker and give up, you know, all the family and all these sorts of things? It's not attractive. Whereas in Asheville Dominicans, like Dr. J was mentioning, they have a very obvious difference between them and the rest of the world. You can't have a husband and a family and do what the Nashville Dominicans do. Um, also, right now, a big funnel is uh, homeschoolers. A lot of homeschooling families, it's out of proportion for how many they send in for becoming priests and sisters and the like. And it sort of makes sense with what Dr. J was saying. If you have five, six, seven, eight kids, there's better chances of one of them being religious or, you know, being a religious order or being a priest. And then also a lot of those families tend to be very faithful and they're funneling a lot um, there. One of the big things is not just a school that funnels for vocations, but they did a lot of uh, statistics from one of the big poll, I don't know, it was Pew Research or something like that. And it's uh, stable families, which is why I mentioned my family earlier, you know, two parents staying together for their whole kids' lives and having, you know, a couple brothers and sisters, but those are like tons of the guys in the seminary, I don't know, it was a vast, vast majority, some huge number had stable two-parent homes, you know, supporting them in these sorts of things. So that, that's a huge thing that helps. But, but do you think that in some respects, and I, I can't speak for every Catholic high school, but I, do, I have some friends that send their, their kids to the Catholic high school in the area. And it seems like those schools are so focused now on just getting these kids ready for college. They become, you know, everything's a college prep, which is, which is great. But it's almost like they've lost focus on, that religious aspect. And I wonder if that's where, you know, the kids, it's almost watered down because they don't want to scare the kids away with the religious indoctrination. I hate to say it that way, but I'm wondering if, if they've almost lost sight of their, of their mission. And that's why a lot of these kids aren't just even thinking about, you know, holy orders. They're going on to college and looking about careers and everything else. Absolutely. I mean, we hardly ever waterboard anybody these days. It's just, well, awful. that's the problem. <laughs> uh, I, I totally agree with you though that uh, there is a lot less of that Catholic identity to way too many Catholic schools at any level, especially college and university, but also down through high school, elementary school, middle school. And so if you don't have much Catholic identity and it's just on going to college, why in the world would you want to become a priest or a sister? If the priests and the sisters aren't around a lot and they're not having a big impact in your life, then there's not going to be, then it's going to have to take something else to get them to become a priest or a sister. It's going to take something else to get them to be really interested in the faith. If all they know the faith is, all right, we went to church once a week during the middle of the week and father gave some kind of boring homily and we sort of learned about it in one class and I passed, then you're not having that incentive to be, you know, to be a Catholic when you grow older, never mind being, you know, a priest or a sister or really living your vocation. And that brings up another thing. I mean, I see it, I guess I went, I went to Catholic, you know, grade school, high school and university but a lot of these Catholic universities, I mean, they're Catholic in name only at this point. I mean, I've, you've seen the articles in the last few weeks. In some respects, it's almost as if you're punished for being Catholic at a Catholic university. You've actually almost turned against church teachings because they're so socially liberal at this point. And I, I'm just curious what you, what you feel about the issue because, like I said, it's almost disappointing. I, my, my alma mater, you know, calls looking for donations and they turn around and tell me, well, you know what, we're a sanctuary college and we're this and that. And it's like, one, those are things I don't believe in. Two, right. it, it's like, I understand the compassion and the desire to help others. But at some point, where do you, where do you draw the line? Right. Uh, I know advice that I've heard for, I think, 20 years now, and it's probably been advice for longer than that is if you're going to go to college, you know, which is not for everybody, but, you know, for a lot of people, 
and for most people, as far as I know, if you're going to go to a college or university, go to either an extremely Catholic college like Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ave Maria in Florida. Uh, I think there's a crazy one, Wyoming Catholic out in Wyoming. Uh, there are a couple other good ones like that that are very, very solid Catholic institutions or go to a great public uh, college or university with a really good Newman Center. Don't go to some wishy-washy Catholic school where it's all watered down, like you said, because it's extremely likely you'll lose your faith or you won't be encouraged in your faith. You'll be stunted, these sort of things. And as for me, I mean, I wouldn't support a university that says it's Catholic and then doesn't actually do the Catholic things. You know, do they send people to the March for Life? That's a great sign. You know, are they promoting, you know, authentic vocations? That's a great sign. Are they getting into stupid political stuff that has nothing to do, you know, with Catholic teaching? Or they're going, okay, we're going to focus on one subset of so Catholic social teaching, and then we're just going to leave the rest out. No, that's not how Catholics work. We're both and people. We're not cafeteria Catholic. I went to a private university, Father Josh. We call it, we call it Ivy University on the website. We had a um, campus ministry that was heretical. Huh. I wish and, I could say I was surprised. Yeah, and um, I went to, they would have like a, a midnight mass for the excommunicated, that, that, that's what I call it. Uh, it was all the cafeteria Catholics that would go to that one. And I went to that one because I had a study session the next day when we had the typical mass. Is that and, what you call it this day, study session? Well, it was, yeah, it was a, um, it was just like a, a, a for, the, for an exam. So, so, and it was scheduled at four in the afternoon, which is when the university's Catholic mass was. Fair enough. I'm just messing with you and trying to get you off track. I know you are, uh, and I'm trying to ignore it, Father, uh, <laughs> respectfully. Uh, so, so, so long story short, he uh, gave a sermon, and it was like an interactive dialogue sermon, which you should never do. And um, he was giving a dialogue sermon, like an interactive sermon, and he was talking about how the Catholic Church needed to change. And I said, uh, can you give me concrete examples, Father? Are we talking women priests, married priests? Are we talking changes in policies first for birth control. Give me some concrete examples, Father. And he started talking off in some lofty, highfalutin, philosophical things. I'm like, no, no, no. Bring it home for me because I need to know what you're talking about. And he looked at me and go, you're from either Philadelphia or Boston, aren't you? And I said, yes, Father. Why? And he said, because those are the two most conservative archdioceses in the country. I said, those are the two correct archdioceses in the country, Father. Um, <laughs> and um, I, I left the campus ministry uh, and started going to St. Paul, which was a church in town, a Catholic church in town, and a whole group of us started going. And really, at my university, religion was never frowned upon, which you might be surprised at an Ivy League institution, uh, but, and it still isn't at that school. But uh, it was my peers and I that kept us faithful. We would go together, we would celebrate together, we'd have dinner afterwards. And it was, it was that which kept us together. And then about a year later, the campus priest got excommunicated. Which That's amazing. Yeah. My, my uh, college experience isn't, it's along the same lines. I went to a, a public college in the South, so largely Baptist, but the Catholic Center was directly across the street from my fraternity. And it was, it was hard to ignore, for one thing. I mean, it was staring at me in the face, but it, it really came down to what Dr. J said. There was a group of us who we were Catholic, but we weren't practicing, I would say, now looking back on it. We didn't attend weekly Mass, and, and we had fallen by the wayside. But as I started getting older, a handful of us started saying, hey, let's go to Mass, and started pulling each other. And it took that, 
that kind of crowd mentality, if you will, or the, the pure support group to get us going. And, and we became pretty regular by the end of it. And uh, since then, I've been a daily, not daily, a weekly mass attendee. That's great. Yeah. I had um, a similar experience in high school. I had gone to retreats and been interested in the faith and been like, woo, yeah, I'm Catholic on the retreat. And then like the instant, you know, it was over, you know, be, you know, Friday to Sunday, like Monday morning, I'd be like, I don't know who that weirdo was, but it wasn't me. Uh, And so, you know, once I had the conversion experience, there were people in my youth group that I was close with and I did everything with outside of school because we didn't go to the same school. And that helped me continue to go forward and stay Catholic and then make it to college. And in college, I was with an awesome group and, you know, it was very easy to be Catholic at the college I was at. And I agree with you all 100%. You have to have a good group around you. You know, either they're going to build you up or tear you down. And if you want to keep your faith, then, you know, they don't have to be Catholic, but it sure helps, you know, especially if they're very interested in being Catholic and you can call them on and help them be accountable and they'll be accountable to you and all these sorts of things. You know, you be accountable to them, all that sort of stuff. Um, absolutely, it's, it's important. And uh, I once helped out at a uh, Newman Center that was right by a sorority and woof. I mean, that was, that was pretty interesting. And, uh, at times, they were kind of a rough-looking bunch, which uh, I'm not sure if that's a nice thing to say, but it's true. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, you know, to pull that thread a little bit, um, you know, I went on, graduated, uh, eventually got married uh, in the church. Uh, my wife is Catholic as well, and we've had kids. And you kind of go through life, and, and yeah, you know, the vocation for me is to be a husband and a father, uh, and that's what I see God calling me to do and, and trying to be a good one. But I felt like I was not quite um, fully engaged in being a Catholic. And it took, I joined about four years ago, our men's group uh, at the parish. And we do a weekly Saturday morning, 6.30 a.m. Um, so it's a, it's a commitment. Yeah, uh, that sure is. Uh, but we started with the That Man Is You program. And then we've moved on. This year, we're doing a lot of Father Larry Richards and the Bishop Barron series. Oh, those are both really good, especially Bishop Barron. He is, you yeah. can tell how smart he is. He's amazing. He is, he is definitely on the, on the uh, academic and the very intellectual side. Father Larry, though, can wake you up at 630 in the morning. He is, he is a firebrand, and, and I really enjoyed a lot of his, uh, his talks. That's great. I've heard very good things about him. Yeah, if you get a chance, his Be a Man series is is very worth it. And I can see why he was attached to, at least at some point, he was attached to a Catholic boys' school. And he can motivate. I mean, he is a perfect kind of um, preacher for Catholic boys. Um, very powerful, very engaging. That's great. I'm just going to sit over here until uh, Dr. J gives me more advice about preaching, you know. <laughs> no, but uh, that's very important. And like I said, being engaged, I mean, it helps so much. I've seen that in parishes too. Even if you're just involved in some kind of small ministry, whether it's reading at mass or especially for guys helping to fix something around the place, just any kind of engagement, Knights of Columbus, that sort of stuff is huge. And it really helps a lot of people feel, you know, closer and feel, you know, take ownership at the parish and all sorts of different things. So m- Maybe we can uh, pivot a little bit and tackle some of the questions that were, were accumulated as we were preparing this episode. Um, 
I'm very excited in that I don't remember receiving that email. So you're going to get, oh. you know, basically <laughs> awful replies that are going to, you know, be half thought out. And so I hope you guys are ready for that. We're ready. Uh, so there's a series of uh, about five questions on, so they're kind of broken down into uh, topics about the liturgy, uh, the church in general, the Pope, uh, and the, I guess those are the main categories. So maybe focusing on the liturgy, um, uh, the Volgi put forward a couple questions. So his first one was, how central do you see the liturgy to the sustenance or revival of the church? I think it's very important for both of those things. And good liturgy really draws a lot of people. And in my experience and a lot of experience of uh, people younger than myself, uh, I'm in my mid-30s, by the way, almost been ordained a decade, be another year or two, Tom, ordained a decade. Uh, younger people are very attracted to great liturgy, uh, many of them to liturgy in Latin, these sort of things. And I've talked to, I don't know how many people who have left the church and gone to uh, fundamentalist churches, non-denominational churches, and other Protestant churches, these sort of things. And they felt like they didn't get they didn't get sustenance from those other churches. Uh, the way that we usually put it is, you know, they didn't have the meat going on in those other uh, services and that sort of thing. And they just kept feeling like there was something missing, and they were just drawn back to the Eucharist. So absolutely, I see the Eucharist and liturgy and these sort of things drawing people in. And then it's nice every once in a while I have a really fancy liturgy, like an ordination, these sort of things. Uh, and then, you know, to really get people interested, you know, even people who are very faithful Catholics come weekly, it's nice to shake it up a little bit every once in a while and get them revitalized. Uh, so I absolutely think it's very central, especially because, hey, you know, we're receiving God himself. That's, you know, pretty important. You know, it, it, that's, it has some things to do with sustenance, you know, and revitalization of the church. And a lot of young priests are very focused on, liturgy and very focused on saying mass correctly and doing these things correctly. And I think a little bit of it is sort of a reaction to so many lackadaisical priests in previous generations where they had almost no formation in seminary and they make so many dumb mistakes or they just, you can tell they don't care that much about it. And, you know, they just sort of just do things by rote and, and there's not a lot of attention paid. And so we've kind of swung the pendulum the other way. And a lot of us are very focused on it in some way more than myself. And then, of course, you get to some that are into scrupulosity and things like that. But I think, especially going forward, that's more attractive to people who are interested in being active Catholics and being Catholics that are very interested in their faith. Might not be interesting to cafeteria Catholics, but, you know, they're not going to be interested anyway. We'll get right back to the episode. But first, a word from one of our sponsors. This is Sylvester from the Free Tax Sparkling Crew Cleanup. Wonder if you have trouble keeping up with all your cleaning needs. Do people in your castle just leave the gruesome dismembered parts of potential intruders just lying around? Are the remnants of science experiments strewn about without care? Obey me. Did Puta and Zahar decorate the bathroom after a long night at the Leaping Peacock? Well, we can clean all of that and more. Well, dear Yeti, ah! polish your medical assistant droid. Heck, whatever that slime is trailing behind Gort when he returns from 2379, gone. So dim the lights. It's so bright in here. 
and let us get to work. Now, let's get back to the program. Are there any kind of liturgical abuses, is, is the term Folge used? His question is, any liturgical abuses you would set an inquisitor on if you were ever made pope? All of them. <laughs> yeah, you didn't. You opened your hands during the Lord be with you before the gospel. You're out of the church. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so, I mean, there a, are so many, but there are some really, really dumb ones that uh, that that people do, and there are some that are just annoying to me. Like I, I remember going to one church one time where they had the extraordinary minister, the U, extraordinary ministers of the Eucharist, often called Eucharistic ministers, come up and hold up the chalices during the um, during the consecration, or it might have been even worse. They might have been holding up this weird glass pitcher of wine during the, uh, you know, that, that was to become the precious blood during the consecration. And then they poured it out, which was already not allowed by that time. Uh, there's so many dumb things that people do. Uh, I was at a church once and they used glass chalices, which we're not allowed to do. And it's just annoying and stupid. And why would you have this in the first place? Just use the right thing. You know, uh, our, our rallying cry of my generation of priests is read the red and do the black. Because <laughs> if you look into the missal that we follow for the mass, basically the book that we follow, the sacramentary and these sort of things, uh, all the prayers are written in black. And then the instructions are all written in red, you know, lift up the chalice, do this, do that. And so if you just do that, you're going to make so many people happy and you're going to set up so many stupid things that, you know, started in the 70s and that people born in the 2000s couldn't care less about. But they think, oh, you know, it's still the 70s. Folk masses are cool. Let's keep doing the same music, you know. Let's do what hasn't worked for 20 or 30 years and just keep doing it till we all die out. Yeah, I'm an I'm a extraordinary minister of Holy Communion. Uh, and it's been drilled into me that I am not a Eucharistic minister. So it, I cringe when you were saying that because I've seen it in other parishes, not mine, uh, luckily. But the one thing that we do have, and I kind of understand it, but it, it creeps me out. And it actually happened today at the mass that I was uh, involved in. Is that picking your nose during the mass? Because, yeah, that creeps me out, too. <laughs> that would creep me out. So we have a, a priest who has a physical ailment such that it's hard for him to walk upstairs. And the tabernacle is at the top of three steps. So we're going to excommunicate him. I'm with you. <laughs> right, right. And he has asked the extraordinary ministers to go retrieve, you know, the hosts from there and bring them to the altar and then put them away afterwards. And it just, I'm not comfortable doing it. Yeah, I would cringe too, because that's against the rules. They actually made a ruling about that two years ago, five years ago. It's within very recent history. And they said, absolutely not. It's supposed to be the priest or a deacon uh, that go to the tabernacle back, just like you're talking about. And, and I could see, you know, people following along because it is the pastor asking them to do this. But really, I mean, he needs to figure out something else because right. that's his job. Right. And, um, can't do and it. See, I understand. And see, I'll tell you, I, the parish I belong to, that's, that's what, that happens every Sunday. Priest doesn't retrieve the, the, the Eucharist. The ministers do. And now part of that, in, you know, in some ways, I'm not going to give them a pass, but I think it's more of the architecture of the church. It's a fairly modern building. It's probably, well, not 27 years old now. And, you know, it wasn't built like your old traditional church when I grew up in the city, that old Gothic German-style church where, you know, 
it was designed when the mass was in Latin and the priest had his back to the, you know, the audience, the, the parishioners. You know, this is a kind of church in the round, the altar's up front, and the actual tabernacle is way off to the side, almost on the other side of the church. So Do they put he, Jesus in the closet? I've seen that no, in so many churches. No, no. They put the baby in the corner. No, he's still front and center, <laughs> thankfully. But, but, I mean, you, you see that. I think a lot of, and again, you know, you're, you're getting back to the other point. You were, you were talking about before about the whole mass itself. People want to go to mass. People want to go and get away. I, I don't want to say it's escapism, but when it's just going into a, a building and someone, especially I think, you look at the other denominational, your, your Protestant denominations, where it's just the guy in a suit up front quoting Bible verses or giving a sermon. It really doesn't take you out of the ordinary and out of the moment. It's just you're sitting in an auditorium. Now, when you go to the church, it should be an out of the ordinary experience. It's some, you know, if nothing else, it's that hour of refuge from a hectic world. We have a little bit of solitude and be, you know, enjoy the mystery of, of what's going on. And I think a lot of the architecture of the churches now don't lend themselves to that. You know, again, I've been lucky enough that you know, when I was a kid, we had a real ornate church, a real Gothic church. And some people say, well, don't get you know, caught up in the dressings and the trappings of it all. But I think that's important in the sense that it really does help you understand it. Look, this is not an ordinary place. This is not an ordinary time. This is a very spiritual time, a time for you to forget what's going on outside the world and really focus on what's important. And I think between the architecture of these churches today that are being built, the way the masses are being done, I, I think you lose that. I think that's why a lot of people don't see a reason to go. Why go? I can just sit at home and read my own Bible, I guess, or I can, right. it, there's just nothing out of the ordinary that really draws you in. And I mean, I hate to sound shallow that way, but I think that's what a lot of people see. And I think that's why as people are going back to Latin masses and you're seeing these kids now want a little more structure. They want to go back to the old ways, even though they've never experienced them. They know that there's something lacking, and I think that's part of the reason. Oh, I, I agree 100%. Uh, and there are some new churches being built that inspire reverence. But, yeah, the Mass is meant to be heaven on earth. It's meant to be different from what we normally do. And I'm not totally against, you know, having, you know, just, you know, having different kinds of music. And I've uh, been involved with some of the charismatics and praise and worship music, this sort of thing. But there's definitely a call to be solemn and there's definitely a call for it to be a sacrifice of praise. And I'm okay with leaning a little more on the sacrifice part of that and having it be more solemn and having some pauses during the mass for contemplation and reflection and having it be a prayer and having it be authentic worship towards the Lord rather than just trying to, like you said, be like everybody else and just have, you know, a concert or something like that, because, you know, there's no way we can keep up with the times. There's, there's no way we're going to be able to do that. And instead we should do what we do best. And like you said, have the mystery and have the sacrament. And I think that's a big part of why the East Eastern Catholics and the Orthodox and such, uh, they call it instead of sacraments, they call them mysteries. And I think that's great. That's wonderful because we do want to have a little focus on the mystical. And even though in the West we are very clinical and sometimes legalistic and that sort of thing, we still need to have that mystery going on rather than, like you said, just some random guy in a suit in front haranguing everybody for a while. I know my attitude, and I'll let Dr. J jump in because I think he wants he has a comment. But, you know, the ch mass in the church isn't, isn't about you. It's for you. You know, and I think a lot of people are so self-centered that they've lost focus of the fa that fact that it really it's not about them. It's about, it's for them and, and the community. Oh, I, sure. I think, I think a lot of people have lost sight of that. 
and a lot of us priests, uh, we get it pretty wrong, and we think that we have to be the entertainer up there, and we have to kind of lead them around, and oh, we have to get everybody going. Uh, and instead, the reality is, no, it's all about God, and it's about worshiping God, and offering him a sacrifice praise and offering him these sort of things. And it's about, it's supposed to be about God. And, you know, if we're great, you know, and we do a great job, wonderful, but it's the point is, like you said, God, it's the point is not us. At least it shouldn't be. Even if you're as good looking as I am, you know, still it should be God. Yeah. Here, here. So I grew up uh, at a parish run by Cistercian monks and and they were very, very holy people. And uh, my parents, the parents in the parish were all silent generation and people who had a real sense of the sacred. And our town, to be honest, was 90% Catholic. So I went home to Philly for spring break with my son, and we went to Mass at my old parish. It's no longer run by the Cistercians. When my pastor died, the the diocese took over. And I was just kind of taken with how it isn't the same as it was that sort of that sense of the sacred wasn't there, just uh, that it was when when I was growing up. And it was something I encountered in Nashville since we've moved here, where we've gone around to like three or four different parishes and, um, and actually went to the cathedral on two separate tours. Um, uh, and I, I think there's something to, you know, a priest with a sense of the sacred that is really important in, in the mass. Um, it, I mean, as you said, I mean, if you guys are doing it right. I mean, we sense that holy holiness, that, that extra, lingering moment of contemplation, et cetera. And I think the other issue is that, you know, down here in Nashville and then the demographics changing up in the town I grew up in, you know, it's not as much of a neighborhood church. And uh, there isn't that sense of, you know, community because you're not seeing the same people that you're every day that you go to church with. Uh, when I was growing up, it was all the, everyone in my neighborhood, everyone I in other neighborhoods that I played sports against, kids I went to school with, you know, and, you know, now it's like everyone's kind of coming from the four winds. Uh, so I think that sense of community might not be there. And then also that sense of sacred. What are your thoughts? Oh, I agree. Uh, especially back, you know, 40, 50 years ago, it was the culture and the community that had a lot of people be Catholic. And it seems like with the drop off in the last 30, 40 years, that some of the difference is that, you know, people don't feel like they have to go to mass, you know, being part of the community and this sort of thing. And then also uh, it does help down in the South where Catholics are in the minority. You feel like you really have to want to be Catholic. You know, it's not the thing that everybody does. And some places you're a weirdo. (laughs) Uh, And so you have to know your faith a little better. People ask you questions, these sort of things. Uh, I had a guy, totally unironically asked me a week or so ago, you know, oh, you know, Catholics worship Mary, right? No, no, we don't. And I thought he was joking. And he said, no, no, you know, he was serious. And so I just explained a couple of things. Whereas, you know, Boston, Philly, like you were talking about before, you know, you'd almost never hear that, you know, probably wouldn't be talking about religion in the first place, because, you know, not a lot of, you know, not, not as many authentically Catholic people, you know, out of the total percentage of the population, but you wouldn't hear as many uh, ignorant things, things ignorant of Catholicism in the same way. Whereas down South, yeah, there is a little more of that community and culture to a lot of places because they're so intentional about being Catholic. Whereas other places, you know, like you said, it was not a community church, a neighborhood church anymore. And there's not that drive to go to mass all the time and pushing people in there, then yeah, you, you lose a lot of it unless you're really going after it and really choosing to be Catholic for yourself. Yeah, the greatest schism down here uh, seems to be between the uh, converted Catholics and what they call the cradle Catholics. So there are those of us who are born into it, and it's just our 
you know, it's, it's our second nature. And, and they're kind of rah-rah cheerleader, a little too enthusiastic, if you take my meaning. Oh, absolutely. Um, but you yeah. forgot the third division, which is those dirty carpet baggers from up north. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, the, but the, we're the ones who were baptized Catholic and, and, came, and, and we're, all, we're all imports in Nashville. Right. I've tried to foster in parishes, just, you know, making sure everybody feels included with, you know, like you said, cradle Catholics and converts. Cause a lot of times converts are wonderful and they spice everything up and they jump right into things and they get everything moving and they get you thinking about why you're doing things and, you know, asking lots of questions. And then the cradle Catholics can help in a lot of ways with those little things. Like you said, we sort of take for granted being Catholic that converts get to learn and it gets everybody excited. And, and I think if it's done correctly and people are accepting of others in this sort of situation, it could be wonderful for a parish and really get a lot of life to a parish. And that comes back to one of the lessons we had at Sunday school that I was emphasizing to my students about a couple months ago, which was the don't idea of smoke crack. Yes. Don't smoke crack. One holy Catholic apostolic church and the key on one. Absolutely. Like, yeah. And it was really interesting because they used diversity to make in the textbook to make the lesson that we are one. And they practically said, look at all these different people from all different walks, but they're all Catholic. And right. that was the end of it. It was like, they're all Catholic. They're all one. That's it. Stop looking at all those other things. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think it, it brings up a good point of authentic diversity, which I don't know, you guys might've talked about on the blog before, uh, as opposed to, you know, it, it's nice when you get people who look different. And I, I, I try to fight that impulse in myself when I look out at a crowd, if I'm, if I'm somewhere, you know, and there's black people and Asian people and Hispanic people and white people and everybody's together and it can kind of give you that kumbaya feeling but it's better when we have the authentic diversity of people interested in different ministries and all oh, those people, their focus is on the pro-life and their focus on something else. And okay. And then we have authentic diversity of thought. Oh, they're really into Franciscan thought. They're really into Dominican thought. And I think it's great when we have real diversity like that, people coming from different nations and bringing that experience of Catholicism and then we can all be Catholic together. Oh, we have the Eastern Catholics. We have, you know, us Latin, you know, Roman Catholics and that sort of thing. Uh, and I think that can be really wonderful and can be great. And it's so great to see it. Uh, writ large. I remember when I went to Rome and you got to see all these different people around and they're all bringing that and they're all worshiping God and they are trying to be so authentic in their worship. And it's such a beautiful experience to have people from all over. And like you said, we can just know we are one church. We don't have to be Greek to be in belong to our church. We don't have to be Russian to feel like we really belong to the church. You can be from anywhere and be Catholic. Thank you for tuning in to part one of our talk on Catholicism with Father Josh. Tune in next week when we finish it up with a discussion on the youth, the future of the church, and the Pope, just to mention a few of the interesting topics. You're a weirdo.